This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 18th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Daryl Withrow. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, verses 1 through 10, Paul's vision and his thorn. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I remain, or I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me then he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, sh- that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's Suddenly, we, I will say, because we are also born into sin because of their decision, We're exposed for the frauds that we were, broken images of the one who had created us, and having been found naked, figuratively speaking, we began to create different coverings to hide our true selves, and to hide our weaknesses, and to pretend that we are strong. We've got a culture and a world full of pretenders, really good ones, and I don't mean them out there, right? In our modern culture, men and women have become, it seems, image architects, brand producers, living under the shadow of pretense. And you can see it so clearly in this cyber world that we have where people put forward strategically filtered pictures of life for all to see. We don't really need those online relationships, though, I think, to do this because Although that might make it easier and more prolific, I think actually we're already experts of hiding our weaknesses in relationships all the time. Why do we hide? Why do we pretend we're strong? Well, many reasons, but I think it comes down to this one thing. I want everyone to believe I'm good enough. I want everyone to believe I'm good enough. And whatever that means. I think it's timely for many, certainly not all, 
but many of our ladies today to be gathered at a retreat. And for maybe one Sunday this year, perhaps men, we can stop pretending a little bit because we're really good at it. Men, for some reason, I think are especially afraid to admit weakness and whatever that means. In our text, Paul is not merely going to encourage us to stop hiding our weaknesses. He's actually going to say boast in them, which is weird. Very countercultural, very counterintuitive. And the reason that, that Paul, so that you understand why he's talking about boasting and using that kind of language in his weaknesses is because he is at the time he's writing this letter being attacked for being literally weak. He's attacked by the church, people in the church that he planted, the church in Corinth, a church he pastored and is still pastoring. You got these people in the church who are basically criticizing him and attacking him and questioning his authority and his apostleship. More than likely, false teachers have come into the church. Paul describes them as opponents many times throughout this letter. And they're just challenging the fact that he isn't that great. That he is perhaps a less than apostle, that he doesn't have the authority he has, that he really isn't even that great of a preacher. They're not challenging any sin issues. They're not saying, well, here's the problem with Paul. Here is the, 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 where he's off in his doctrine. Here is the ways he's hurt people. They're actually just boasting these opponents in their own awesomeness, and they're talking about Paul's stinkiness. So the first nine chapters of this letter, of which I hope to preach this in the fall or sometime later this year, he just is pastoring them. Then he even references the previous letter, the first letter to the Corinthians that he had written, which was a very harsh letter, pretty in-your-face letter in many ways. But the first nine chapters here, he's kind of just helping them resolve some of those conflicts. He's dealing with some of the interactions they had. It's very pastoral. But when we begin in chapter 10, and we're going to be in chapter 12, but beginning in chapter 10, Paul starts to defend himself. He starts to defend his ministry a little bit to address these fraudulent opponents who are basically talking spiritual trash about him. And if you look at chapter 10, verses 10 to 12, you'll see the kinds of things that, generally speaking, they're saying about Paul. He just calls it out. He's like, I know you guys are saying this. In verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, it says, For they say, speaking about these opponents who have come into church, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. Right? His letters are strong, but eh, not real impressive in person. His speech is of no account. Translated, his preaching stinks. He says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So he's like, oh, we really want to talk about this, huh? Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another. They're without understanding. Okay? So you get an insight like, oh, here's the stuff they're saying about him. His opponents acknowledge that Paul, man, he's a great writer. Man, a guy can write really good, strong letters, but he's kind of unimpressive in person. His bodily presence is weak. 
After identifying a few other criticisms as he goes through the letter, they say things like, like um, well, Paul doesn't charge money, which the best teachers charge money to hear their truth. He's like, oh, sorry, I didn't charge you money. And be really impressive that way. And so like, you can just kind of get this sense like they're just criticizing him and mocking him and attacking him. So Paul starts to respond to his opponents by offering them a resume of his apostleship. And he does this in chapter 11, which is a crazy chapter. And as he does this, he admits, he's like, look, I, I'm going to start boasting and I know that I'm kind of playing their game. And by that it means he is going to re re uh, reveal their claims or what they're saying about him as foolish by being foolish in a very foolish way. So he's kind of like playing their game. So in chapter 11, beginning in verse 16, he starts to list different things. And I'll just read verse 16 and then kind of read some bits and pieces as we go all the way to 33. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Like, I'm not really this foolish, but I'm going to be kind of being foolish to make a point. But he says, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast just a little bit. He's like, what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Right? So he's going to like, let me just be foolish with you for a little bit. And then he keeps going, and he, he starts to say things, but... Whatever anyone else dares to boast, I'm speaking as a fool. Like he says stuff like, dude, I am so educated. I am this. He actually starts listing things, but he, every kind of other verse or a couple times he's like, I'm speaking as a fool. He kind of reminds them, I'm just playing their game. He goes, I also dare to boast of that. Are they servants of Christ? I'm better. He says that, I'm better. And then he later says, I'm talking like a madman. So he's, Playing their game. You want to boast? Oh, I can boast. You want to play the compare scar games? Let's go. Hey, look at this one. And then he literally starts to list out some of the foolish strengths that prove his apostleship, that prove he is better. And as you read through chapter 11, you read things like, oh, you question my apostleship? Let me tell you why I'm better. I've been imprisoned. I've had countless beatings. I've been last 39 times, or 40 times minus one, which means 39 times you were assumed dead at, age, at 40. Not age 40, praise God. 40 lashes. But he had 39 lashes five times. He had been beaten with a rod three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked many times. Hunger, thirst, insomnia, stress. He like lists all these things out. You want to you talk about like a resume? But it's interesting things he chooses to put on his resume, right? It's not the kinds of things that, that they're talking about. Oh, we're amazing preachers. He's like, yeah, I've been beaten. Oh, okay. He ends chapter 11 by saying, where I began in verse 30, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. But then Paul shift as he gets into chapter 12. And as he shifts gears, he reveals something that isn't going to appear on anybody else's resume of apostleship. It's possible they'd have beatings. It's possible they would have suffered a little bit. But he had an experience, a genuine something to brag about that he's going to share with them. But the amazing thing is he shares it 
as an opportunity to show how he's even weaker than they might think. Beginning in chapter 12, he says this, I must go on boasting, so he's playing this game right, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That's weird. We'll hit it. Whether in body or out of body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in body or out of body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which men may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. It's on my own behalf. On my own behalf, I will not boast except for my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Like, this really happened. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So what did did Paul just say? Well, something very amazing happened to Paul. And he feels or he had the sense he's kind of like his hand has been forced. Like, I don't typically talk about this. I don't typically lead with this. But you've pushed me to this place where I have to talk about this. He's speaking in third person about himself. And apparently at some point in his ministry, 14 years ago from this point, he was caught up to the third heaven. It's like, really? There are three heavens? Well, the first heaven you consider is the the atmosphere of the earth. The second heaven would be considered the atmosphere outside the sky, the stars, right? You know, Mars, planets, those kinds of things. And the third heaven would be heaven, heaven. Spiritual heaven. The invisible heaven, if you will. Spiritual realm. So he had some experience where he was caught up and he says, I don't know if I was just there in spirit. I don't know if my whole body was like transferred there. I don't know. God knows. Doesn't matter. But he was in this spiritual heaven. And so it's like after he lists out his resume of stuff, now he's like bringing out the big guns. It's like, you want to talk about something happening? He throws down like the greatest scar comparison conversation killer in history, right? Where you sit down and you have people like, you know, as they're sitting around like, you know, talking and at parties or whatever, and people are like, well, this happened to me, this happened to me. He's like, I went to heaven, right? And everyone's like, wah, 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 my story's lame, right? I went to heaven. You guys want to brag about your teaching? You want to brag? I went to heaven and heard things that I can't even repeat, He was caught up into paradise, he says. The same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he speaks to the believing thief saying, today I'll be with you in paradise. Echoes backward to the Garden of Eden and forward to the paradise of God that we read about in Revelation chapter 2. Whether in body or in spirit, Paul says, I don't know, but I was in the presence of God and heard great revelations. He heard things that cannot be told. Things which men may not utter. What were they? He never uttered them, so we don't know. But he's like, they were pretty amazing. Suffice to say, Paul had this amazing spiritual experience that it's difficult to compare with anybody else. He's like, this was awesome. Few, if any, will ever have this experience. Now, his disciples reading this, you think about the the people who are on his team, on Team Paul at the church, be like, whoa, Like, whoa. And his critics probably would have been pretty quickly silenced. Paul has proven what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. 
He says, look, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these so-called super apostles. He's like, yeah, I know you guys want to talk about super apostles and awesome apostles. Like, look, I'm right up there. And again, he's playing their game. Paul is not a junior varsity apostle. apostle. But that's not the reason why Paul shares a story. He actually uses it to admit and to embrace and to boast about a weakness that came as a result of it. He did experience something miraculous, something amazing, something special, something worthy of bragging about. He received something that in very obvious ways would make him feel special, might make him feel better than, might make him feel like, say what you want, I was in heaven, right? You could be prideful, prideful about a good thing that God had blessed him with by grace. More than that, it's something that could cause him to be more elated with himself and less dependent on God. Isn't that weird how that works? A gift from God that actually could take you away from God? Surely we, we have some of those things in our lives that have that potential. Good things that God has given us that in fact lead us away from God, even toward idolatry of that thing. The awesome jobs that we have given by God. The awesome marriages that we have given by God. The children we have given by God. The experience we've had given by God. And we go, oh, how many of those things, those good things, actually lead us away from Him at times? See, the darkness of sin, sin is so dark that it's not merely about the bad things that we try to call good. Some of the worst darkness, if you will, is when sin takes those good things and we use them badly in place of God. Did you know that our Father loves us enough that He will not let that happen without doing something? He will not allow us to be like children who, oh, I just want to live independently, which would be really foolish for a little kid to kind of like, oh, I can just do whatever I want. They'll be unloving and unwise, even if they're confident and I can do it and be independent. Paul writes in this verse chapter, I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 12, so to keep me, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too excited about myself and walking away from God thinking, wow, this is great. Oh wait, that was a gift from God. Too elated. Too pride-filled. I think really simply you can say God gave Paul a thorn to make him weak. At this point we go, oh, I'm glad that happened to Paul. Good, that's good for Paul. I'm glad he didn't become prideful. Be careful. Here it comes. You know, scholars argue exactly what this thorn is. They have all kinds of theories. It's interesting to read. Some argue poor eyesight. There's like actually about 15 of them, and they kind of can be categorized, categorized into kind of five. I've literally had someone say it's like in-laws. And I'm not joking. I've like read that. Because they assumed that Paul was probably married, and it was like, oh, like I, whatever. Most commonly, it's poor eyesight. More commonly, it's epilepsy. 
continual opposition from critics, demonization, even depression. Whatever it was, it took a physical toll on Paul, an emotional toll on Paul, and it made him weak. It made him weak. And I would argue that this weakness is not simply a character flaw. Weakness is not just a lack of ability. I would say the weakness is not a sin, though it certainly could be a temptation. Think about that for a second. Epilepsy, that's not a sin. Depression's not a sin. There might be some sin at the root cause of that, but some of those, all those things are things that just are there. And temptation isn't in and of itself sin, but I certainly think a thorn could be an abiding temptation that like, oh, I just don't even want that temptation anymore. I don't even want to think about that anymore. And yet it's still there. Whatever it was, the thorn was this thing that was undesirable, this thing that made life uncomfortable, and this thing that seemed pretty uncontrollable. Like, I can't fix this. I can't stop this. I can't do anything, or Paul would have done something. This thorn, this weakness, is something that hurt something that he didn't want to have in his life, something he had no power in himself to change. And perhaps what makes it maybe worse is that the text seems to say it was given to him by God. Right there you go, wait, 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 wait. That sounds a little too extreme. Paul says a thorn was given to him after these revelations make sure he didn't get prideful. I read an article recently about Charles Spurgeon. I, may, I think I posted it. About his causeless and perpetual depression that he experienced. Charles Spurgeon is known as a prince of preachers. Had a very successful ministry, but he was depressed throughout it all. And about this experience, Spurgeon once said this, it would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction or a weakness which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by His hand. That my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. Do you catch what he says there? about his struggle, about his perpetual weakness that I guarantee he didn't want, that made him uncomfortable, but that he couldn't stop. He says, as, as hard as it might be to believe that God sovereignly gave this weakness to him for a purpose, he says it's worse to imagine that he didn't. It's worse to imagine that it's out of his control. It's worse to imagine that he wasn't the one to measure it out, that he wasn't the one to actually govern it. That's worse. So Paul viewed, this thorn, viewed the thorn, if you will, as given by God. But then he also says that it's a messenger of Satan sent to harass. The enemy intended to use the thorn to torment Paul, to irritate him incessantly, and it did. Like a thorn is this, the kind of thing that it's not like it's there one day and gone the next and you forget about it for a month. It's, it's there. Constantly there. Constantly there. Always reminding you. Harassing you. Did you know as 
you read in the book of James, particularly the first chapter, you'll see that all tests from the Lord build our faith, but those same tests are often used as temptations by the enemy to break it. The same thing. So Paul's dealing with this weakness all the time. He couldn't escape it. He had to face it. And most often when we have the pain of that kind of weakness in ourselves or in others, we usually deal with it with two different ways. Sometimes we run from it. The fight against this weakness or this thing or this thorn is just, is just too difficult. I don't dare expose it. And so we withdraw into ourselves and we literally withdraw from life and from the community of God's people. Rather than face the weakness, we hide from it, not knowing that we can't avoid it forever. We'll have to face it again, but that doesn't stop us. And other times we stand and we try to fight it. Instead of running and hiding, we kind of stand and hide, which is kind of weird. We put on a happy face, stifle our true feelings, pretend it's not that hard, pretend that we're stronger than we are. I'm okay, I'm fine, no big deal. And sometimes this can look like a passive surrender to what I would consider resentment. And other times it's an angry fight against God and everyone else as you try to fix it under your own power. In one sense, you're like, ah, it's just too hard. I don't want to deal with it. This can't be fixed, whatever. So you just run, run, and run and try to find some Savior somewhere else that can maybe give you some hope and meaning and joy apart from Jesus. And the other is, I'm going to stand and fight and do it myself. You notice that Jesus isn't in either of those equations. One makes an idol out of something else or a functional Savior out of something else. And one makes a functional Savior out of yourself. And the question I have for the person that typically stands and fight is, what if you can't fix it? Or even worse, what if it's not supposed to be fixed? Even though there's no rendering, running, there's also no surrendering to the fact that you're weak. And so I believe that there's courageous in between where God wants us to live and where Paul finds himself. Even beyond surrendering and just admitting our weaknesses, it's actually boasting in them. God wants us or he, I should say, wants to use our thorn, our weakness. What weakness is it? Maybe it's a physical weakness. Maybe it's an emotional weakness. Maybe it's a mental weakness. Maybe it's just a situational weakness. Maybe it's a spiritual, material weakness. It can be all kinds of weaknesses. I believe he wants to use that weakness in ourselves, in others, or a situation to make us more dependent upon his power. Paul gives an example of, of how we're to deal with this. And how he responded rightly to the thorn. The first thing we see is that the thorn caused Paul to draw near to God. What did he do? He went to God. He pleaded with God three times that the thorn would be removed from his life. Plagued with weakness that he could not fix, he called out to the Lord for help. I am so surprised how often we face a weakness, how prayer Going to the Lord is like 10th on the list of 10 things we do. And really, it's just a way of thinking we can fix it. Or I'm just going to avoid it being fixed and pretend it's not that big a deal. But we all have our breaking point, and the question is, what's yours? 
What's the point where you get on your knees and you go, I, 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 can't, I can't fix it. I can't do it. I can't run from it. I can't fix it. I'm going to have to actually plead to the Lord for help. This past year, I experienced mine, my breaking point for sure. My emotional breaking point, my physical breaking point, my spiritual. I have cried. This, now, it could be because I'm in my 40s, but I cried this year more than I've ever cried. It's weird. Like little crazy things make me cry. I watch some like, I literally was watching like a baking show yesterday and someone lost the competition and I'm like, oh, she tried so hard, you know? <laughs> like what's wrong with me, right? I've wept a lot and over important things and unimportant things. It's not normal for me. I didn't even know I had tear ducts up to a couple years ago. But I've wept more this year than any other. And for the most part, I felt like I, I was, I'm not the runner, I'm the fighter. I think I can fix this. And I think a lot of you men are probably the same way. I, I can fix this. I can deal with this. And so I didn't call out to God for help. I certainly didn't plead with Him three times. I'm not talking like, oh, you didn't pray three times? I'm sure I pray, prayed three times. But that phrase is, is more of a complete like, man, I just, I just was diligent. I pursued. I knocked on that door to Jesus. Like, Come on! I need you! It's like this. Hey, I got a problem. Well, you're not answering? Fine, see ya. That's moral probably what it was like for me. And if you read in Luke chapter 11, I believe, about the Lord's prayer and the parable that follows that about knock, 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 knock. Be persistent! And how the good Father will answer the door. I didn't do that. Pridefully, I refused to surrender. Refused to admit my weakness, but I fought. So it didn't look like... like Hey, you're fighting, man. All right, way to go. Yeah, but if you're fighting in your own strength, eventually your strength gives out because I'm finite. My breaking point actually came this last October physically. Some of you probably see me walking around weird. Um, not that you will watch me walk, but you know, you know what I mean. But I basically, I can't feel my legs that well. And that's because my back's all messed up. Um, but that was at the climax of a super stressful point in, in my life and in my ministry, and then suddenly my legs aren't working. Okay, so I've like, you know, played college soccer and been like, you know, healthy for the most part, and then suddenly like, you're like wobbly. Now, I hate to break it to you, but like, that's some, not something you can control. That's just a pill for that, right? Suddenly I'm weak, like weak in every sense of the word. And it's been weird, about four months. But this is something that I, I had no control over. I didn't like it. Maybe really scared, really fearful. But I'm learning that the weakness that we feel physically and emotionally, they're just signposts to remind us that we're, we're weak spiritually. They're actually really good reminders. Because other than my legs being weak, I feel like I got most of my life in control. I feel like I can do most stuff. I can do whatever I want. Which isn't true. And my, my body being broken in many ways, and I sat with the surgeon, and they're going to do something to my neck and put like some metal in there and be all weird. And he, he goes, so uh, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, <laughs> what's that mean? He goes, well, we're going to go through your throat. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> he goes, your voice could change. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it'll just kind of get deeper maybe, but it will return in time. I was like, oh, really? It's not going to go up, right? That would be really bad. Like, all right, open your Bibles. 
Like, I couldn't handle that. I could handle like, oh, open your Bibles. You know, like, but think about that fear. All right? I mean, think if, you, if, you're a, if you're someone who works with your hands, like, by the way, your hands are going to be like this forever. You can't do that. You're like, uh, I'm not really in control of this. But just as I can't heal my body, I, I, I can't do anything about that. I can't fix that myself. In the same way, I spiritually can't fix my own heart. I, I, I can't survive this life on my own, though I think for a lot of time, we can kind of pretend that we can because we get by. And then there's that moment you don't get by. And this is where Paul's at. He gets this weakness that he can't control. He can't fix. And he cries out to God. Pride, fellas, and I, I say as someone who struggles, and I just showed you my struggle, right? I would love to say that when my weak, legs got weak in October, I'm like, my legs are weak. Let me pray. No, that's not what I did. It was like, let me gut it out. Let me take a pill. Let me like go to the chiropractor. I'll fix this. I needed to get on my knees and pray. Pride is the worst response, and it's giving in to the devil's harassment. If you read James chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, it echoes the same idea. It says this, God opposes the proud. Okay, so God is against the proud. I can fix it! He opposes you. He's against you if you're that way. He says he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And then what does he say? Resist the devil. Why would he say that? Because the devil represents pride. The devil represents rebellion. The devil wants you to say, I can fix it. I can be God. If you resist the devil by submitting to God, he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Pray to God. Cry out to God. And what? He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You will not have to exalt yourself. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will fix you. You will not have to fix yourself. So the thorn caused Paul to draw near to God, but if you notice, it also caused God to draw near to him. That's the beauty of it. Like James is right. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Paul cries out to God and prays for the removal. He says, please take this thorn away. Get rid of it. And then God spoke to Paul. And he says to him this phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He didn't remove the thorn. He didn't remove the thorn, right? That's when we think prayer is successful. God answers my prayer when the thorn is removed and strength is renewed. Do you realize, and this is where I've had to sit over the last two weeks as I met with that surgeon, one thing he told me was like, even if we fix this, just so you know what you're feeling may not change. Come again? You may be weak forever. Come again? I thought you were supposed to fix it. And in the same way, God's fixing it is not removing his thorn. He leaves it there. He leaves the weakness there. God says, my grace is sufficient. He declares that what you have right now, including this weakness, is enough. You don't need more. You don't need less. What you have and what you don't have right now is my grace. Even with the thorn, 
Paul, you have enough to deal with every difficulty in your life. Oh, come on. Because that's what we imagine, right? If this weakness was gone, I could do this. If this weakness, I could do this. And Paul, God says, no. You have everything you need because you have my grace, even with this weakness. The grace of Jesus is revealed in his power, which is made manifest through my weakness. And here's something that has is, is just been a powerful thing for me. And sometimes I'll, I literally, this is not to be all spiritually weird, but sometimes I'll write these sermons and I'm like, ooh, that's good, God. And good by him going, oh, that's good, God. Do you know how hard it is to see God's perfect power when all you're surrounded by is strength and success? When all you're surrounded by is good things and success and ease and comfort, it's really hard to see God's power because all you can see is your own. So what does God do to help us? He surrounds us with imperfection and weakness so that we will stop looking at ourselves and others and start looking at Him. He will surround us with weakness in ourselves and in others, imperfection in ourselves and others. You know what happens when, you, when you're with a group of people, you're in relationships or just to yourself, you're like, oh, I, I, I don't know if I like that. That seems weak. That seems imperfect. We either run or we fight as opposed to turning to the Lord. Saying, I'm not going to depend upon myself and I'm not going to depend upon you. I'm going to depend upon Him and I'm going to stay right where I'm at. It's hard to see God's power when all you're surrounded by is awesomeness. And so He strips us from, He strips the awesomeness from us so that we'll see it. The thorn caused Him to draw near to God and it in many ways caused God to draw near to Him and speak to Him. Like, who doesn't want to hear that, right? I, I know for me, if I can just hear God say, I got you. Guess what? He just did. This is the living Word of God. The thorn caused him, Paul, to admit weakness so that he could be strong in Christ every day. That's where God wanted him. To not be strong in himself, but to be strong in Christ. Think of all the things that Paul could have said or felt in response to God's words. My grace is sufficient. Really? You don't, want, you, don't want, you want to take this away? Maybe? Any response other than what we see Paul do here, any response to my grace is sufficient that's not praise be to God, Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, praise be to God. Any response other than something like that is some form of this. Jesus, you're not enough. You're not enough. I know I have you, Jesus, but I really like my physical health. I know you have you, Jesus, but I really like my material success. I know I have you, Jesus, but I really want this taken away from me or added to me. And what God is saying is, I'm enough. Even if you don't get that. Even if that doesn't change. Even if this is imperfect. Even if you are weak. I'm enough. I'm enough. I'm enough. If your relationship with Jesus is you're not enough. Remember how we talked about last couple weeks, this relationship dictates this relationship? When you start saying, Jesus, you're not enough, you start looking like this and you're like, you're not enough either. No one's good enough. 
You're weak, you're weak, you're in ah, and it all works together. But Paul responds this way in verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast of my weaknesses so that the power of God will rest upon me. If we hide our weaknesses, the power of Christ cannot rest upon us. We're not strong enough. That's the message of the Gospel. We're not strong enough. You realize the center of our faith is the cross. Like as men, I know we want to be strong enough, we want to be good enough, we want to be fix it, and and those are in in some ways admirable things Like because we want to be strong. That's not a bad thing until it becomes an idolatrous thing. Until it becomes the supreme thing. But the center of Christianity is a cross. That is the epitome of weakness. That is the symbol of shame and disgrace. And yet that's the iconic symbol of God's love and God's glory and God's power. That's the paradox of Christianity. Like, why have the cross? Because it shows us who we are and who God is all at the same time. All the pain and the adversities that come into our lives are not merely the ways to display Christ's power in us, but they're actually the way to experience Christ's presence. It is the way He draws close to us. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world or a person. When weakness rears its head in your life, when a thorn comes up, that that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want that in my life. I don't want that in my family. I don't want that in my job. I don't like it. I can't fix it. Instead of asking the question, I wonder what the Lord's teaching me here. Which is kind of our typical reform what the Lord's teaching me. Maybe ask, how is the Lord inviting you closer to Him? How is He pursuing you? How does He want us to draw you closer? Not to teach you some lesson, but just to be with you so that you'll depend upon Him like a son depends on a father. In conclusion, I would say that Paul doesn't merely acknowledge his weaknesses, he boasts in them. He doesn't brag about them like, yeah, look how weak I am. But he doesn't shy away from speaking about them. He embraces the criticisms. He refuses to hide his struggles. He proclaims his insufficiency. Why? Because he believes deeply in the Gospel. Why does Paul boast about his weaknesses? Quite simply, he knows that the weaker he is, the more Jesus works through him. To boast in our weakness is to boast in our dependence on Jesus. It's an act of surrender that that shifts us from surviving by ourselves to thriving with Jesus. We are surrendered when we talk about our weaknesses in our person or situation like Paul who says this at the end, for the sake of Christ then, knowing this, 
knowing that his power comes to rest on me in my weakness, I am content. Some translations say, I take delight in. I take delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in calamities, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul literally says that the power of Christ will pitch a tent over him in those moments. So I would encourage you men, and as I encourage myself, don't waste your weakness. That seems odd, right? Don't waste your weakness. God wants to use that weakness to draw you closer to Him. God wants to use that weakness for you to acknowledge that you are weak, but He is strong. And in Him, you could be way stronger than if you tried to fix it yourself. Paul doesn't merely tolerate his weaknesses. He endures them joyfully. He lives out this counterintuitive, countercultural truth of the Gospel which says, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am small, Jesus is big. Or as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. Don't waste your weakness. If you thought you were strong, you might believe that you'd have to respond to every insult someone gives you. Every criticism that's laid against you. If you were strong, you might believe you have to overcome every hardship by yourself. If you were strong, you might think that you have to fix every problem and calamity that comes into your life. Get off the throne. Let God be God. And get out of the way. And in that moment of confessional surrender that I am not strong, you will find the grace to endure, even to rejoice in every affliction. And more than that, you will be able to show grace to others who prove to be just as weak as you are. It plays itself out in our relationships, right? If you think you're strong, you expect them to be just as strong. But if you know you're weak, you have grace and compassion. The kind of grace and compassion that Christ showed you. The gospel is not for those who pretend to be strong. It is for those who are, dare I say, courageous enough to humble themselves and admit they are weak and they need a Savior yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that's what this communion table is for. We come to this table in many ways, to confess our weakness and to participate in his strength. It is to come to the table, and I love that it's, it's tangible, right? We go through these motions every Sunday, I think, and I think that's what we sometimes do. Like, I just do this because I'm a Christian. Okay, you're coming to the table, and we are coming together confessionally. This is for believers. And you're coming confessing that I am weak. The body broken for you. The blood shed for you. That is the declaration that you are broken and rebellious and more evil than you'd ever admit or know. You are weak, though we pretend we're not. So as you come to the table, you're saying, I'm weak. I'm weak. I know I'm weak. He knows I'm weak. We know we're weak. And we take the bread and we take the cup. And Jesus says, but in me you are strong. In me, 
You're not weighted down by the burden of your shame and the burden of your guilt and the burden of your failure. He planned for your failure. So stop depending upon yourself to get through these difficult times and and stop praying like, this weakness won't go away. What are you doing, God? He's saying, lean on me. Depend on me. Know me. And you'll have enough. You'll have enough. Let's pray.